Caution. Learning in progress. Welcome, everyone. This is the Smarter Every Season podcast. You made it. This is it. This is Smarter Every Season. It's the podcast that's brought to you by the product support team here at Precision Planning. And we want to thank you so much for listening today. My name is Tyler Hubert, and I am coming to you from, well, today on uh, on this kind of August day. It's a beautiful sunny day here in Tremont, Illinois. Um, I am joined in studio right now by Freya Watson. Freya is back with us. I on the am. Podcast. How are you today? I am doing great. Awesome. Well, I tell you what, you have put a lot of thought into what we're going to talk about today. So the best thing that I can really do is just kind of sit back and let you explain what we're going to be talking about. All right. So yeah, we, it is a beautiful day in Tremont. And what makes today even better is we've got our Ukrainian teammates here um, in the studio and we get to learn from them about their experience with precision and it's pretty exciting watching what's happening from across the pond. Um, so we've got, uh, Ivan Daneko and Grigori Afram. Go ahead and, and introduce yourselves. We'll start with Ivan. Uh, hi everyone. That's, uh, very nice to be here. It was a very long range, uh, travel to get to States. We have, a quite difficult times right now in our country and uh, we feel that a lot of guys are praying for us for our country and we are thankful for that for your support yeah and um, I would say that uh, I'm very glad to get to my colleagues to um, to our office in Tremont and uh, enjoy uh, and a good conversation we spent some time in our uh, PTI farm, uh, and we are getting into the process uh, as we should. Of course, we had a uh, we had a pretty difficult season, but same time we would like to stay in touch and uh, do whatever we can to support our customers in the best way. So, I want you to talk a little bit about your experience coming over to Precision Planting. How long have you been working for Precision? What brought you over to Precision? Tell us a little bit about that background. Oh, it's a uh, very interesting. first interview I had like a more than four years ago, and then I had a very long pass, and uh, I already working for a precision plan like uh, three and a half year uh, as a product support team member. I had um, very good teammates who helping me, and um, yeah, we were working together shoulder to shoulder, um, and yeah, there's a there's a great. A great experience that I'm going each day and getting this experience from each customer. Um, and we are thankful for everyone uh, in Ukraine who uh, trust in us, who trust in precision planning, and who is willing to be with us in this in this time. Yeah, Gregory, tell us a little bit about your background. What brought you to Precision? And how long have you been here? So I'm with Precision Planting for uh, two years already. I joined uh, joined it after working for about nine years in Akko. So I came here from Akko. You can imagine that uh, most of most of my previous experience was office life, so to say. Uh, but still, my ancestors are very much in the farming. So for me, this is like coming coming back into to where my family belongs, my, my predecessors. 
right? Uh, belong and uh, I, I was very much missing this farming experience, this field experience when I worked in the office for for many many years. So now I'm enjoying it, uh, enjoying it a lot and learning a lot. So your family farms. My predecessors, my grand grandfather was a landlord, so to say. Okay. But then his family, he didn't want to join the collective farm, and his family was um, banished. Uh, they were sent to Siberia. So my grandfather grew up in Siberia, uh, and his uh, his brothers and his sister also grew up there. And then he returned back to the European part of the Soviet Union. And you know, um, so my grandparents, great 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 grandparents, are farmers, and for me, this is like something which I was missing, and now this is like um, experience which I was lacking, and now I'm enjoying it a lot and learning a lot. Uh, yeah. So you had a draw to get back out into the field, be background farmers and equipment and planners. Oh yes, and you know what? I feel like this is something where I belong. So this is something which. Um, uh which which comes easily which is added easily to my experience so uh, i i take it quite quite easy i would say that this learning curve is quite easy for me so ivan i want to jump back to you when you started with precision planning i think early on in your career we met you and i did yeah. and um we have attended a couple like trainings together. I can remember a couple years ago we were in France together and trained on product. So you and I have, have had a, a very good working relationship over the last couple of years. It was funny. You came into the studio today and you sat down, you put the headset on, you pulled the microphone right up to your mouth, like exactly like you knew what you were doing. And you said something like, this will be no problem. I used to be on the radio. Yeah. The, I, in, during my like a college experience, I would say I had a practice working on the radio station. I never knew that. Yeah, I, I had some kind of experience this. And so, t- so tell me a little bit about that. What, what did you do on the radio? <laughs> was, it, was it the morning queue with Yvonne? Everybody was calling in. You would give the traffic and the weather. And how did that work? Did you give advice? <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> I've been mixing. I've been working as a, as partly as a DJ, partly as a... Um, in in studio, so helping to like uh, cover the um, the guys in the studio while while they were recording. So that's kind of thing. And I've been working on a uh, on on different things like together with them. It's, it, it was it was interesting time. So did you play music? Yeah, yeah. you had to. You were a DJ, right? Yeah. What was your? I, I've been a DJ before. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is your favorite type of music to play? Come on, it's uh, it's, it, it was techno, yeah. It's, really? I, I like techno. Yeah. Is there? A, do you have a favorite band? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. We just like from time to time. I'm just listening. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Well, that was something I learned about you that I didn't know <laughs> that you had previous uh, previous on air and radio skills. You always should have some kind of you know like uh, uh, good cards in your pocket. You know, yeah. Like secrets. Yeah. 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 Not show everybody everything. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, gentlemen, I'm excited to dive a little deeper into what agriculture looks like in Ukraine. I know that looks probably a little different in the last six months. So I'm hoping you guys can kind of go back on uh, what in your time at Precision has kind of looked like agriculture in Ukraine. So let's kind of just kind of start here, I think. Um, Tell me a little bit about what does a typical farming operation look like? Can you give me an idea of the average number of hectares a usual farming operation has? Um, and we'll, we'll start there and kind of unpack more about the average farm. 
Yeah, I can say that agriculture is a big part of the Ukrainian economy, and uh, the total arable land area is 41 million hectares, which is 102 million acres, just for your uh, understanding of what it is. And uh, the average farm size, if we divide that total area by the number of farms registered in Ukraine, the average farm size is is 1,800 acres. Okay. 1,800 acres, yeah. But it's interesting to to point out that out of those 55,000 farming farmers registered in the country, uh, farming companies from 1,000 acres, from 1,000 hectares, sorry, to 3,000 hectares, they cover one-third of the total arable land of Ukraine. Okay. Okay, so a tipping, typical farming operation is going to be about 1,800 acres for us here in the U.S. Are most of the farms family-owned? Are they corporately owned? Talk to me a little about how ownership typically works. So basically what we can say is that there are huge agro-holdings who owns uh, very big size of lands, and there are small farmers who, who are the landlords by themselves. Um, there is no land market as it is, so you cannot go and buy right now a land shares as you would like to have. At the same time, Ukrainian government started the program, and uh, one year this program is already working, and it is like a market um, market price for a land share that you can get and try to buy. So basically, right now there are big agro holdings, uh, average farms, and the small farmers. And the same time, uh, all this process is, uh, you know, like is all the time under development. And um, yeah, we would like to have uh, more clearance about how things will go forward because it is very young country. Not everything is set up as it should be. So we we will see how things will go forward. Um, but at this, the same time, um, I would say, um, yeah, this is the most, I would say, innovative markets in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I just wanted, I think that might be interesting for the American uh, listeners to know that, I mean, to know a little of uh, of history to understand why it looks like this today. So you know what, historically when uh, collective farms were, uh, when the Soviet Union was falling apart and those big state-controlled collective farms were uh, cancelled, were dismissed. About what time time it, frame was it that? It was 1991, 1993, etc. So that was okay. the process when those Soviet-type state-controlled bigger farming enterprises were dismissed. Uh, then there was privatization of that land previously owned by the state. And you can imagine that uh, those huge farming companies would be privatizing their land among the uh, village dwellers among the uh, people who were living citizen of villages and uh, small towns, etc. And as a result of that uh, decision of that privatization, each would get a tiny bit of land as their proper as their property. So the average size of that tiny bit of land, which was privatized, uh, turned out to be around from eight to ten acres just from 8 to 10 acres. And uh, now, thinking that, uh, thinking that um, 
an average size of the of the farming company in Ukraine currently is 1100 acres you can imagine how many rent agreements they need to maintain with those small private owners of their of of those uh, land lots so they are thousands in fact so if i understand that correctly basically there was a time in the early 90s where a lot of what was soviet land was split up it was taken from like the soviet or state control and split to the people of that area yes that's correct in ukraine it is correct okay yeah and the average size of a lot of the land being split up was around eight to ten acres yeah that's true okay um so is that are there a lot of people around that area people didn't buy it were they kind of basically given this land as a as a part of okay for everybody who doesn't know you guys nodded your head to that so that was that was a yes um so tell me is there a lot of people that kind of then like put their eight to ten acres together into like kind of a bigger contract and then one farmer might kind of come around and and farm that or how does that work and i wanted to add to that too because ivan said that there's not really an open land market so yes. I guess how does that play I, into I can, it? I can add a couple of words uh, to this. So actually, there was since the land was privatized, there was a ban on the land sales you know, market. So you could not sell it. Y- you could be the owner. You could give it to your children, etc., as the uh, as as a heritage. But you could not sell it, or you could not buy it. So, and that moratorium was um, prolonged f- uh, from. Pe- uh, Many, many times till uh, finally on the 1st of July 2021, it was cancelled. So our land market opened up just one year ago. So basically before that, that those lots of land could be, could be kept, could be exchanged, could be given as heritage, but they could not be sold. And that created a huge problem for farming companies who could not actually con- consolidate the land the land bank they could not uh, create bigger farms they could only rent and when you are rent- renting from thousands of private landowners it, it it adds a lot of bureaucratic burden a lot of uh, legal headache so to say and they <laughs> yeah and those those big companies they have to keep departments of lawyers who would be maintaining those rent agreements etc so the land market opened about a year ago and since then the total number of uh, of sales agreements for those land lots has in, has reached about 100,000 deals yeah so about 1000 deals has been um, concluded since then so it's the market is quite active and the total uh, the total land area which has been already sold since since that market since that moratorium was lifted is 260,000 hectares and which is about uh, 700,000 acres so give me kind of an idea like is this a certain section within ukraine or like how big of an area in ukraine uh, had land that got split up I don't remember the size of uh, the arable land in Ukraine. Do you remember it? Yeah, the total uh, the total arable land of Ukraine is one hundred and two and two million acres. One hundred and two million acres, 
and that that, that the whole the total if I understood the question correctly so basically that total area was privatized and split in those tiny lots all of that acreage all, all of, of that. I mean uh, a part of no no not not uh, yeah that's a good question so I think one third of that area okay. is still controlled by the state so basically okay. it's a combination of different um, uh, title different ownership models different okay okay that makes sense so let's jump into that because it does sound like then what ends up kind of happening is you have a lot of what I'll call farm managers that basically speak on behalf of all of these kind of ownership groups that have their eight to ten acres of, of land right? So I assume that what that means is, again, you have a lot of um, farm managers that Ukrainian dealers are working with, not maybe necessarily directly with the grower. Is that correct? Well, the market is uh, is a bit more complicated. So <clears throat> there are small farmers who are working, and there is a directly there is a direct contact between the dealer and the farmer by himself, but the farmer most of the time not owning the land but renting the the uh, you know like the parts of the of that land so those land shares as we say and basically then he is consolidating those land shares and he's receiving the field that he is arable uh, making his arable processes there so the biggest i would say the biggest th- there are a lot of different troubles that ukrainian farmers are facing with but one of the um, important one is that uh, farmers would like to have their own lands to be secured in everything that they are doing there. And all the time what we, what they are doing right now is they are uh, working and looking back what won't the, if there will be any change in their land shares consolidated together or not. So will there come one of the owners of that land share and take it out of the field? So this is the part... That, that they would like to, you know, like um, cover. At the same time, um, uh, there are those big agri-holdings who are managing those uh, big land shares and they are in contact with the legal department, land legal department, as they say. They are managing the contact between all of those land shares together. Can you imagine the size of paperwork that they are doing? It's completely <laughs> crazy. Yeah, there's a... There's a lot of things to do. So the big thing that I kind of take away from that is it sounds like a lot of farmers end up renting their land. Yes. They pay somebody else, a, you know, that they can go on and then farm their land. There's not a ton that's owned by the sp- the farmer. By himself. Yes. Okay. I also have a question on this because um, with there not being a market, was there – legal restrictions on like somebody receives this 10 acres like in the u.s if you receive 10 acres you might want to build a house on it was there restrictions on like and that would take out some arable land but was there restriction of no we need this all on farm ground well the there is a dedication of this land share mm-hmm. so is it arable land share or is it for building or for business proposed so that's a, that's a kind of you you can transfer it from one to another but it is requires a lot of paperwork and lots gotcha. of processes to be done yeah that moratorium that ban on sales market concerned to just the agricultural land so you could easily sell or buy residential land within the measure within the borders of some settlement so there was no problem at all but uh, the only restriction concerned the agricultural land 
yeah. And if it is agricultural land, you cannot build a house uh, in the middle of the field. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> you can if you look at the map of Ukraine. I mean, that land ownership map. It is accessible online. It will look like a multi a multi patched blanket. I mean, like, <laughs> oh, like tiny. a quilt. A quilt. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And yeah. hundreds and thousands of those tiny lots of land happen to be in the middle of a bigger field, without any access. So basically, one land one landowner who does not want to rent can, can and these are many cases like that can create uh, some issues for the land uh, for, for the farmer who who is renting that uh, just because the tiny piece of land happens to be in the middle of a bigger field. Yeah, and he creates the road yeah. just there <laughs> across the whole field. Like yeah, <laughs> and also uh, one interesting thing to add about this um, land market process which started last year is that the limit of the size of the land which could be purchased by one person, by one physical uh, person, is 100 hectares which is uh, 240 acres. So they, they, uh, they understand, the government understands that the land is one of the most strategically important assets of, of Ukraine and they want to avoid a situation when uh, the land is concentrated in the hands of, 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 of a few people who would be then influencing uh, the economy or politics, etc. So they started with, with allowing just 100 hectares to be purchased by one person. And there is still not pos- it is still not possible for a, biz- for a company or a legal entity to purchase the land, the agricultural land. So it is just physical people who can purchase it. And it also creates an obstacle for farming companies to build uh, to, to to build land land banks for their operation so i think one thing that is kind of important to call out or i think is interesting to call out and i i think i recently saw this on the news and so that's why i'm kind of making mention of this that just for everybody's kind of frame of reference ukraine is slightly smaller than texas here in the united states um the articles that i read it has a little bit more than 233,000 square miles, whereas Texas is 268, right? So just to kind of give everybody kind of a, a little bit of an idea of how big the area of, or, or the country of Ukraine is kind of in a, in a surface area standpoint. So talk to me a little bit about what that means in terms of the, the field access, I mean, where you may have 10 acres or like you kind of, of mentioned, uh, Gregory, like a, a quilt, right? Many different patches in one larger field that I would assume could create some problems with like access, right? Access to my 10 acres within this field, if you will. Um, how does that affect like common planter sizes? Oh, that's a good question. I, I would say that is a great question. There are fields by themselves are pretty big. I know farmers who have a 48-row planters, you know, like, and they would like to have a bigger planters at all just to make this job to be done in the accurate uh, amount of time. The problem is that if you have the land share that it, it will be out, it will be a big problem of, with logistics during the field operation. So um, I would say the average size of the planter would be like 16 rows, 16 to 24 rows. It's a, it's a mid-sized planters that we have. Okay, so they are mid-sized because some people will say, I don't want to rent to you. Is that why? Am I understanding that correctly? So, so 
Yeah, it's a, again, it's a tricky one because everyone would like to have a bigger planter to, to, make, to, to make a bigger acre coverage, you know, like in the same pass. But same time, from logistic perspective, 24, 16 to 24 rows, it's, uh, it's the most uh, common thing that we have. Yeah, I can add that Ukraine is um, a large, large farming enterprises market. So basically, it's the country where big players are in the agriculture. And this is, uh, this is a result of different reasons. For example, financing. Of course, a smaller land landowner will never be, it will be hard for, he, for him or for her to afford buying agriculture equipment to, to, to cultivate or to do his little plot, even, in, if, even if they get together with a number of landowners like that. So uh, that is why bigger companies, bigger investors came into the market and uh, r rented the, this, uh, this land. And uh, smaller landowners were happy to give their land uh, for rent. I mean, they, they were doing it because there was no other choice for them. And they understood that uh, this is the case when they could get at least some money for, for renting. And uh, otherwise, that land would be just standing idle. So in total, uh, the number of companies over... 24,000 acres is uh, is 175 companies. So you can imagine that 175 farming companies in Ukraine operate the land above 24,000 acres each and higher. There are some holdings which control like half a million uh, acres, like 500,000 acres up to 700,000 acres. That's big. That's huge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they're not located in one region, for example. They will be all over the Ukraine rating. Okay. You know, like they have branches, like, for example, in Kyiv region or Odessa region, whatever. So they, they are located in all, all over the Ukraine, but they are consolidating the banks mm -hmm. of the land shares you know, like, uh, around the country. So you touched on this a little bit, and I want to make sure that I understand this, Gregory, is that beings that most growers have to rent ground to farm it, how does that affect financing? Is there a lot of times where they, they need to borrow money from the bank and from a bank and how do they go about doing that? Or is, is there challenges in that because they don't own a lot of their ground currently? Yeah, that's a very, very valid question because, you know, the, the land, when the land is not owned by the farmer or by the farming company, it cannot be, cannot serve as the collateral the bank right right so yeah but you know what at the same time uh, agriculture is one of the key key export industries in ukraine so it it provides for 40 percent of total export in terms of money so agriculture pro products products contribute 40 uh, percent of ukrainian export in total and about 10 percent of its gdp so uh, understanding that banks are providing credits to farming companies with, uh, even though the land cannot be used as the collateral just for the assets of the company and for their business operation etc so and that is quite that scheme is quite um, successful in ukraine so a lot of companies are i mean all, all the farmers are using bank loans etc although they do not own the land and also you know that became a reason for in international foreign investors to come into the market with with funds sourced from outside of Ukraine for, and then they they come into the market and they invest into building 
big farming companies. And also one more interesting thing related to that is that when they when international companies are coming into the market, they don't only bring the finance, the international finance, but they are also bringing some um, management practices or technologies or standards um, of the highest, of the up to... Uh, modern technologies, etc., of the international standard or international level. So talk to me a little bit about that. You guys have a growing season, I think, that's very similar to us here in the United States and that you're going to most of the time, well, let me back up. Common crops would be what? Uh, I would say corn. The same same as you have cereals, corn, uh, sunflower. It's what you guys not planting a lot. Okay. But the sunflower... I would say Ukraine is in the second uh, place in the market of exports of sunflower oil in the world. Really? Yes, it is. Okay, I don't think I knew that. So commonly uh, cereals, uh, like your cereal rise, your things like that, right? Uh, you said sunflowers, you said corn. Typically your planting season is going to be similar to ours in that you're you're in the April-May time frame and then harvest. Harvest in the autumn, yeah, and then we are starting to seeding. Okay. Um we have also uh, like a pretty large number of sugar beets that we are okay. growing, like and some some number of uh, vegetables in the south. The problem is that south right now is a difficult regions, and uh, yeah, that's that's what we are struggling right now at the moment. But at the same time, the season is is pretty similar to you. So talk to me about like a typical um, management system throughout the year. Is it uh, you know, typically we see planters come in in the spring and then we do a side dress and then, um, you know, we come along and harvest and then do like work ground in the fall. Are you primarily no-till? What, what I guess, take me through some of the common um, farm management practices that you see and, and kind of a why behind them. So as I, as I talked, told previously that um, Ukraine is pretty innovative one. And Ukrainian farmers are trying to look in, in forward, you know, like in and to get in touch with the modern technologies and ideas of uh, what is most efficient uh, technology on the market. It is, but uh, the still the large number of like farmers by themselves and even agro holdings or agronomists who are working there are still looking in into the plowing as the normal tillage operation. A lot of a lot of modern farmers are coming to the no-till and strip-till, which they are considering to have a, a better, um, you know, like water management and better soil management by itself. Uh, but at the same time, yes, the the, the biggest uh, is the just just the plowing. That's what that's what they are doing. Broadcast in fall. Um, some farmers are applying like a like. Uh, um, Call this uh, nitrogen, I would say, um, but not not all of them. The, the, most of the time, yeah, there, there is a spreading, and then uh, spring cultivation, seed bed preparation, and then then planting campaign. Not all of those do a side rest. It used to be common thing that they used to do a lot, uh, but because of logistics, it's uh, it's a pretty pretty hard for for them. So those guys who have logistics, they are doing uh, side rest preparation. Those who are not who cannot avoid, you know, like long-range travel with the liquid or okay. the place where they can store liquid nitrogen, they are not doing side rest. That's the, that's the main thing. So my understanding then is the reason for not doing side rest would be like 
storage or having somebody else to, to basically tender it, right? They can continue to bring you. Um, yeah, the biggest problem with the liquid is, uh, is actually the logistics. Everyone likes how it works. Everyone likes the efficiency of a liquid fertility systems, but the problem is with the logistics. You, you need to store it somewhere, that nitrogen. And that's uh, that requires some difficulties for farmers right now at this point of time. Sure, sure. That makes sense. So talk to me a little bit about, you mentioned soil types. Um, what are the common soil types? If you see, it sounds like you see a fair amount of like conventional tillage or tillage practices. Um, what are the common kind of soil types uh, across Ukraine? What is the typical organic matter that you kind of see? Well, it's a, it's a good question. So <clears throat> most of the time uh, we are with, the, um, I would say, dark clay soils. Uh, almost almost all over the country. Sometimes we are going to more to sandy soils, uh, and uh, they are more represented on north and the south. Uh, but, uh, yeah, most of the time we're going to the dark clay soils. Organic matter is, like, from 2.5 to, like, 6% in average. Um, it will be, like, 4.5 uh, all over the country. Uh, I, do, I don't say it's too much, but it's not... Uh, uh, but it's not... So less as in uh, you know like in other countries where we're seeing that. So yeah, but the, but the farmers are looking into the process of, of the soil development. So right now, what we are talking and what we are discussing with the farmers during our farm visits, during our shows, or during the trainings uh, with our dealers, we are talking about the development of the quality of soils. And that's what um, that's what actually brings precision planting into the into the game right now. Why is that such a big talking point? Oh, you know, like when I <laughs> when I just when I just started to work as a precision planting employee, I've been you know like looking into the technology, and that's what farmers were looking at right now, even in this point of time. So, hey, what do guys do you have there? Oh, you have a smart app, this is automated system that will control the depths. Wow, I can do a, almost a robot in a field, you know, like that. We have a lot of a lot of things about technology, a lot of talks about technology. Those uh, huge agro holdings have a specialist, dedicated specialist who who, who is uh, like a precision farming specialists, the guys who are in the technology process and they are like the, with the fire in their eyes are going to, to do some kind of innovative things. But, you know, like since I've been working three or and, and more years in um, in this process right now, we had a farm, like I would say, let's our research farm in the western part of Ukraine. And we got some... Uh, you know, like good insights of how things are going and uh, the, the processes that are going on. And it's kind of amazing thing that uh, the best thing that precision planting is uh, creating for a farmer, the best value it can give, it can save the operation processes that he'd done before. For example, he's preparing the seedbed, right? And then he's come with a planter with the, with the general setups that he have from a factory, for example. No one even something so he put the uh, downforce on the heaviest position and he starts planting so can you imagine he done a lot of job he he prepared a really really nice seed bed place and then he just you know like removing everything that he've done like over compacting with a planter tractor planter etc things so and there it comes a lot of 
precision systems to to help you know like delta force is just amazing thing it's just helping to create and save this uh, very good and nice type of uh, of a furrow and uh, that helps to develop and uh, the plant and make this uniform emergence to happen so it sounds to me like if i kind of understand this you had a lot of like farm uh kind of managers from some of these larger agricultural holdings that were very interested in technology, but they needed to understand what it was actually doing to the soil. Yes. So that's where a lot of your training has come in in that we've had to kind of take those guys and explain what it means to then prepare the seedbed properly. It is. To it effectively is. use the equipment. Yeah. It's, okay. it's really nice to, to explain how equipment helps to develop their soils and it's amazing there's a lot of things to do how much of your time do you spend then with like the operator of the equipment versus the the like kind of farm manager because I'm, I'm making the assumption that the farm manager is thinking more along the business sides that there's somebody else that then actually comes in and is doing the farming is operating the equipment so how much time do you spend like on farm like training the operator uh and compare that against like kind of the training that you have to do for a farm manager to, to understand the value of the technology. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's also very, very interesting question, how things are going and working. So most of the time, if we are talking about the large farms, there is a manager who is making decisions, right? So the operator is just a guy who is sitting in the track and, you know, like making the run with the plunder. So he's not making a lot of decisions, are he's doing good or bad. But still, what we are talking about with those guys is that sometimes what you have and what needs to be done is to get into the field by themselves. And we are taking them into the field. They used to sit back in the offices and, you know, like listening and looking into the process. What we are doing, we are trying to get them out. Uh, most of the time, operators are smart guys who are, you know, like if they're seeing, for example, red or green color on the display, they will pick up the phone and, and talk about this with the manager who, who would like to have that. From the other side of perspective, we are going and telling them what they see in the display. How can they efficiently use this information from the display and how this information is going to come back to the farm manager to make the right decisions. It is a process. Yeah. So it sounds like you focus more of your time or a lot of your time into getting the farm manager to understand how the equipment should be run, what the display m means, and then your operator ends up calling the farm manager first kind of for support or to understand what they should do next. Then the manager might reach out to you guys if further help is needed that requires a lot of trust and you know like relationship to be built yeah 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 you're not getting really calls from the operator of like maybe i need help fixing this it goes to the manager and then to you well we have the same questions that you do is this planter is not seeding yeah. or this planter is not planting like what i should do and this <laughs> is directly questions from the operator at the same time you need to go to the f to the manager and talk to him also it requires okay. a lot of a lot of yeah. job to do. Oh. <laughs> it's a lot a lot of calls a lot of conversations together with them yeah but same time they are always you know like you can always learn something mm -hmm. in any conversation you have you can you can get some kind of insights what is going on there gotcha <laughs> well 
on the topic of like how how the farms and farm managers and operators are how that's a little different in Ukraine. What about pre- precision in particular? So like you are a product support specialist. I am. Um, but I'm guessing you wear more hats than that or am I maybe I'm not understanding or I don't have as good of a view of what precision is in in Ukraine. So like dive into that. Like what all who all is who all are employees in Ukraine and what does everyone do? Yeah, we've got a little team of uh, currently and there are three of us of us in Ukraine. Hopefully it will be changed soon. Maybe we will have a couple of more people in our team. At the moment, uh, this is the we are a part of ACO Ukraine. So there's an office in Ukraine with a bigger number of people who are supporting other brands of ACO. And we are like a part uh, from the organization perspective, a part of that uh, company. And we work, so if you, if you are asking how Precision is working in the market of Ukraine, we are working through... 12 independent uh, dealers. All of those are at the moment uh, premier dealers. They are importing uh, the product from the f- from precision planting in the States. So we don't have a sales office or sales entity in Ukraine from who we would be invoicing the customers or sell or conclude or signing the deals, etc. So this all is done through our dealers and and this puts a lot of responsibility uh, for the dealers. They need to to do all, all the things they need to import the product install it uh, explain all the agronomic advantages etc teach the uh, train the f- farmers to operate it set it up in the field etc and we are providing all support which we can which is needed for them to do it so our dealers are like our extension in the market and um, our hands in the market actually so we we are acting through our dealers uh, uh, there are different com- different dealers in the market. Some of them are big companies who are also selling uh, full line of products like tractors, combines, implements, etc. But we are trying to build our network based on the model which proved successful in the States and in other markets of the world where small retrofit companies focused on this uh, kind of business can be m- most successful. And this uh, we, we also have a number of such dealers in Ukraine. So basically our dealer network is very it consists of very different companies, very big companies, multi-million operations or very small family family run businesses which would consist just of a couple of people and that's all. And also I heard that in the states just speaking about the difference, you know, in the states there are many dealers who are at the same time farmers this is maybe the sign of some uh, uh, entrepreneurship traditions here in the States when a farmer wants to earn an extra buck and when he sees some product is, is successful, he's offering it to his neighbors, next door farmers, etc. And it works. Uh, so he, he, he tries it first in his field and then he's, he can offer it, show it to other farmers around in his area. In Ukraine, none of our dealers... Uh, is farming so basically may- maybe that would would be interesting for you to know so that's quite a, a little different from from what you have in the states i'm ge- i'm guessing that comes from culturally or at least being being a part of of um collective farms yeah collective collective farms that it's just re- you removed from from an entrepreneurship 
kind of that could of be mindset. Yeah, that could be a reason. Yeah, that sounds like 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 a part of the explanation, of course. So basically, in Ukraine, agriculture equipment dealers are mostly sales or trade sales companies or traders, you know, who buy product and sell product. And precision planting is a chill is a bit different. Requires a bit different approach and a different philosophy when you are not selling in the first place, but you are consulting or teaching the farmer how to improve his operation, what it consists of, what uh, quality planting is, w- what factors influence it, etc. So it requires a bit different DNA, and I think this makes precision planting unique because it brings some new experience into the market, a uh, new approach. Gotcha. So... Um so I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, we here in Tremont as a product support team, the majority of our calls are from our dealers. Is it kind of the opposite where the majority of your guys' calls are actually from the operators and the farm managers rather than the dealerships because they're larger dealerships? Or am I getting that wrong? So it used to be like we received calls from everyone and from the farmer and from the operator and from the dealer, all over the guys. And that's that's what makes us to be, you know, like pretty disturbed during the season. And we were searching for different opportunities and understanding how we can, uh, uh, what things we can do differently to uh, to stabilize those uh, those questions. So this year, uh, so previous year, we we started to provide a lot of a lot of different trainings, technical training for our dealers. Uh, we got like 120 dealers uh, that that we trained for uh, four months, uh, and we also get them on board how to provide the right type of training to their customers, and. Um, this this process started to you know like shift gears a bit and uh during the winter like in the february we started to do a training like online training for uh for our customers by themselves so they can join we we have the video on the youtube channel that they can look and just to just to understand like what they see or just to try to remember what they see on the display and how the system works. And that's, that's just totally fine. Most of the questions are pretty simple to answer. So that's was, that was the process, how we can remove those simple questions, get to the more uh, dedicated things and ac- actually say that we reduce our calls like 57, uh, 70, 75%. So it's awesome. Yeah, so we are receiving right now pretty difficult questions that most of the time I even require to get out to the field mm-hmm. at the same time. Like uh, those simple questions like how things are working, what I should check, and how I should set up the, the crop. It's Flip the master yeah. plant switch. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's it is, yes. On the topic of, you know, what business looks like in Ukraine, um, are there any big challenges? You said that one of them was the... A number of calls you guys were getting and it sounds like you've just done an amazing job at um, being proactive and answering those questions before someone has the opportunity to pick up the phone and call Uh, but what what other challenges have you run into trying to get into the Ukraine market maybe because of the size of the dealerships I'm guessing they're very large businesses, so like getting your foot in the door there for them to provide one more thing. Have have you had any difficulties, or is there something else that 
you thinking of? Yeah, it's a, a very good question. And Freya, and I can say that one of the challenges we have in the market is to provide quality support in the season, in the peaks, in the peak of the season, because you know we are just a couple of figures for you. Maybe it would be interesting. In 2019, we retrofit our dealers retrofitted 120 planters. A year later, in 2020, they retrofitted 62 percent more. Uh, which was 194 planters, and in 2021, the mar- our our uh, retrofit volume grew one third, 35 percent to 261 planters. So we can imagine 261 planters retrofitted a year, and this is done in a very very short period of time before the season when the product arrives, etc., and then all those like 261 planters, for example, need to be set up, assembled, and put into operation. And it puts a lot of stress, a lot of workload on our dealers. So they need to have people in place, they need to have equipment, etc., infrastructure, operation, management, etc. And one of the challenges related to that is how to load those people with... uh, with work for the rest of the season. So, of course, we are trying to extend the season that is harvesting. And we are ha- we are happy to learn that, I mean, to know uh, when precision planting is expanding its product portfolio, so it helps our dealers to extend the season so they are not only focused on planting, but also on harvesting, on spraying. And now some other products have been announced, which also could be helpful to our dealers to uh, to make the operation more efficient in terms of the seasonality. Because, you know, a- anyway, this is a seasonal business, but still, if you manage it the right way, you can be busy the whole year round. Oh, yeah, I, I just did the math. 261 divided by 12 is 21 planters per uh, dealer. Just yeah, yeah, that's the, the, a good number. On average, on average, yes. Yeah, it's on average. Yeah. <laughs> just don't forget that uh, they retrofitted pre- previous year and pre-previous yes, year, yeah. and that's a uh, central yeah. thing. So the number of retrofitted planters are just growing and growing, and dealers need to be more proactive yes. in supporting all of their sales. Which yeah. is going on. And you can imagine that if it's not dealers, I mean, this number of planters, installations, etc., it's all on dealers. We, as precision planting people in the market, would be able to support a dozen, maybe, not more. I mean, but when we speak about hundreds, like three, almost 300 planters, it means that the system should be working. Dealers should know what to do. They should be properly trained. They should know how to how to do it, etc. So, and that's why the responsibility and also the uh, expectations from dealers are pretty high. And also speaking about dealers, uh, I said earlier that we have different companies from multi-million operations to family-owned, family-run businesses. And um, this also is true for their experience. There are, comp- there are dealers who are for many, many years in the market who were earlier he- in Ukraine than, for example, myself joined Precision Planting before me and before Ivan. Uh, so they're very experienced dealers who actually were a part of precision planting history in the market. So they were developing it before there were any precision planting people, uh, employees uh, supporting them from inside of Ukraine. The earliest one is from 2012. 
So it's ten uh, years ago. Yeah, ten years of experience in the market. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. So would you guys say then that maybe kind of one of the the biggest needs in Ukraine is more dealerships? I mean, do, is that fair? Well, I would say the 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 number of employees who would be properly, uh, you know, like developed and assigned to the to the to the processes during the whole over the year. It is the main question. Like, how can we load them and uh, get them busy during the year? So, is that one of the biggest challenges you kind of see your dealerships face? Um, Because I'm thinking now, you know, like you guys are talking about, there's quite a few planters there for dealers to support. And I think we probably have some dealers here domestically that that probably support that many planters or have precision products on on that many planters. Um, You know, averaging about 20 that have retrofit in one year plus 10 or a couple more from previous years. So maybe you've got about 30 to 40 that your dealership kind of supports. I guess talk to me about what's the the kind of the biggest business practice then that you you coach your dealerships on really being good at. Is it around hiring people? Is it around you know how to kind of help them keep busy or thinking about other services they can provide throughout the year? Is it managing inventory? Is it I guess what kind of is it that you see is is some of the biggest kind of needs of your dealership in terms of kind of running their precision business? So I would say the most important thing that we are training them is to get them into the fields, get them busy, get them working with the customer directly in the field and working there and receiving the trust and loyalty of the, of, of our growers. That the building relationship, building their own experience of the processes in the field, this is the main thing that we are working right now and work looking into the development. So that kind of sounds like kind of that trusted advisor kind of role. This this is what we are going into, yeah. Yeah, that's that's mainly maybe the main thing which we need to develop with our dealers. Looking at our partners in Ukraine, some of them are quite advanced from the uh, mechanical perspective so to say so engineering companies who were one of our dealers is owned and run by the engineer by the former service engineer so you know if the person is his if his background is engineering and service support this is how he understands business and this is what his priority is other com- other dealers would be uh, more advanced in smart farming in uh, advanced farming operations, technologies, but they would be a little behind in terms of mechanics or service, etc., hardware, so to say. Uh, some dealers would be more incli- inclined or biased towards uh, product inventory, so they would build a big stock and they, then they would be safe from that perspective, uh, selling it sometimes to other partners, other dealers in the market. So as you, as you can understand, the profile of our dealers is very very different and but saying that uh, almost n- all of those need to develop that agronomic uh, a- agronomic expertise agronomic advisory uh, in their oper- in their experience in their in, in their knowledge etc so that that would be like like priority number one for us and for them so this is interesting too and you guys have talked about this already but 
there's not a lot of like farmer dealers, which what we, that's kind of that might be kind of a, a, a North America term, but basically there's there's not the heritage it sounds like in Ukraine of family farms that there may be in the United States where farm ground was handed down from generation to generation. And so it sounds like because of that, Gregory, um, just that, that there's not as many like that, that farm and also sell seed and also sell precision equipment that a lot of times your dealers who have taken on precision dealerships are very good with equipment or mechanically but they don't necessarily have the farm background and also understand how relational agriculture can be or is. So the like at the, the basic profile of our dealer is the precision farming company or pre- precision farming branch. The guys who actually know and, you know, like have a fire in their eyes when, when there is a, a talks about the technology and the thing is, are, are going to happen, you know, like with the planter or with the machine or how they can be more efficient with the equipment. At the same time, those specialists are very good, knowledgeable, and young guys who who have a lot of perspective to be developed. That our, our task, our job to get them into the field, into the operational processes, and that's, that's, where, we, that's where we are going. I think that's a really good call out. And you cleaned up what I was kind of trying to say, Ivan, <laughs> and that was it's not so much of a of a of a challenge because you've got it sounds like a lot of maybe younger dealers then that really take to the technology and enjoy that part of it. Um, there's there's still growth opportunities in terms of digging in and, and understanding kind of uh, the agronomy impact, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a much better way I think to say what I was trying to. I, I would like just to add that uh, that's exactly true and. A couple of our dealers, understanding that none of our dealers is a farmer at the same time, so none of our dealers is farming, has, has have their own farming operation. As soon as they build this expertise inside, inside of their company, they, the, the success is, is there almost... Uh, for sure, for granted. So, and and we can we we have a couple of success stories like that. Uh, when, when a dealer uh, built their own plot planter and plant, and the dealer to get this experience, to get this knowledge, they are planting with their own plot planter with precision planting equipment to show the difference to farmers. They're learning at the same time. They're learning themselves at the same time. And also one one example for you. So one of our dealers planted 11 plots last year, and out of those 11 plots, they saw, they signed seven sales agreements as a result of those uh, uh, plots. Awesome. So this is a great example how successful they can be as soon as they add this agronomic consultancy approach to their operation and this uh, we understand it fairly well and th- and that is why this is one of pr- priorities for us how to develop the market and the dealers how do they get the ground then to put the plots in what's kind of the agreement that they've had in place to get ground or to get a spot to put plots in to do some testing that's a it's a it's a great question so Basically, uh, when when we received our first plot planter to to show the difference to to the dealers and to the processes, we were in the contact with the dealers asking, "Hey, do you have someone who would like to you know to get the plots mm-hmm. to be done?" 
because we would like to see, you know, like different crops, different styles of operation, different, I would say, uh, farm management practices, etc. Et things. So we, this was like a more like a discover uh, drive around the country to to set the plots and to to, to develop ourselves. And then dealers saw that there are some guys who would like to learn together with them, and they are searching for this type of farmers with their plot planters, and that's what they are doing. That's, that's okay, great, very cool. This is going to take kind of a 90 degree turn from what we were just talking about. But as you guys are talking, I'm like, I'm, I'm jotting down notes over here of things that I want to make sure that I get background to asking about because they were good points and they kind of dawn on me too. Uh, I want to talk too about crop rotation, which is something that we, we brought up earlier. What is the typical, do you guys do crop rotation or take me through kind of a, a typical crop cycle? Um, you guys typically plant corn and then come in post harvest and do like a, like a cereal. Um, I guess take me through kind of what typical like like crop rotation is, or do you typically do corn on corn? Or so there are farmers like? who are practicing like a corn on corn. It's not much. Most of them are going to the into the crop rotation, whereas uh like a sunflower corn and the cereals that's a that's okay. a more common one. Uh, Western parts uh, would like to add more. Um, canola uh, into the crop rotation together because you know it's it's pretty margin a lot of margin in canola and that's what they are earning right now. Um, uh, during the if if we go into the big agri holdings, for example, some of them are using the sugar beets in their crop rotation uh, to you know like to add. Soybean is a pretty uh, pretty good crop you know for everyone and uh most of the time they are mixing like the uh like a corn and a soybean to to receive more um nitrogen in, in the soil like at the same time get get some some kind of additional money into the ground uh so that's um that's the process that they are doing the the same time i would say the the, the process of crop rotation is also migrating a bit because of difference of uh of how uh, the climate is changing, so most of the time in the south regions, um, they used to. The, so usually, as I said before, we are plowing a lot, and the south region we're also plowing. But the times when rain falls is all, it's it's a bit low. So what they are doing right now, they are adding like a, they are adding cover crops into the process. Some of them are inputting the strip-tail um, bars and in the, into the fields just to cover the soil and to save the moisture, not to add the yield, but to save the moisture, which will uh, be leaded to add the yield. So that's that's kind of thing. So crop rotation is also changing during the climate. is also is changing all around the country. That's a great comment, Ivan. Yeah, so actually a lot of farming practices have been changing due to a climate change in Ukraine. And also, uh, generally speaking, Ukraine is, I would say, this is a monocrop or monoculture uh, agriculture. So basically there are uh, very few main crops which dominate in the the farming uh, uh, operation throughout the country. And they they would be wheat uh, in the first place, then uh, sunflower, corn, barley, and canola and those may those and s- some sugar beet so those would be like main crops in the market and of course depending on the export prices farmers are making 
a choice to, in favor of this or that crop be, be beyond the ag agronomy, beyond the agronomic reasons. So the world price and also another reason w which would be influencing the crop pattern is the change in the climate. So we know that over la over last years, in especially in the south, they changed their crop pattern and they are uh, planting more and more uh, or they're, they're growing more and more wheat and also because of lack of moisture many regions which were previously dominated by corn have are moving towards sunflower etc so basically it is influenced not only by agronomic reasons but also by su by some economical reasons like like prices crop prices and also by weather weather conditions in ukraine as you can understand, uh, irrigation is quite an exp quite a big investment. Would be quite a big investment, and not many farmers can afford it unless you are some big holding, big company which can invest, which has sufficient finance, etc. Other companies would not be able to build this irrigation on their fields, and that is why they are depending on the conditions they're working in. And also, you know, speaking about Ukraine, I would like to add that. We almost we have very little cattle farming, so mm. most of our agriculture land. It this is about seventy percent, or sorry, seventy seventy eight percent of total agriculture land is arable land. So you can imagine that uh, just one, just about twenty percent of the land is for something else, like for perennial hayfield, pastures, etc., and forests and. 80%, like I said, is arable land. And uh, those are just few crops which are being grown on that piece of land. I'm just curious about crop prices. And you may not be able to have a conversion in your head, but a a ton of corn last year, what was a farmer getting for it? And then I'd have to convert uh, uh, what that would be to bushels. Yeah. For, I can say that. Yeah, that's a very good <laughs> question. You know what? Ukraine being one of the major exporters of wheat, sunflower, corn in the world, of course, Ukraine is operating by the world prices. I mean, uh, this is th there. There are logistic routes established for exporting those massive volumes of of yield of crop, and this has been the case until. Uh, until this year when the war start started and those established logistical routes have been blocked and then the farmers found themselves with their yield being unable to sell it to anybody being unable to export it from the market and maybe you you have read it in the news and the, in that uh, and until the southern ports have been unblocked to export the grain the prices for crop inside the market were several times less than the world prices. So basically, the farmer was offered like one-third of the world price. It depends on the regions, on, on, on some particular situation, but still they would be offered one-third of the world price. Otherwise, they can just sit, they can just stay with their grain and they have nowhere to sell it, etc. So this added a lot of stress on our farmers in the market we are in the same boat of course and it also influences how the farmers are investing in the new technology so if they are unable to sell their their crop they are quite conservative in terms of investing in the new technology 
Yeah, that's uh, that's actually what is going on right now in 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 the country. Uh, nevertheless, if if we will get back to the question about the moisture, you know, like and how farmers are actually uh, looking to and develop their understanding of the processes, we had a one of you know like field day, I would say, with the farmers, and we had a conversation about the smart lab system and how the moisture affects the the crop development, and you know, like. We, we have a conversation and we keep talking and talking and at one point I said, look, there is a, you, we, we discovered together that in, dur- during the period of the plant development by itself, there are two types of moisture, right? There is available moisture for a seed to be, you know, like germinated and then it is like a moisture that you need to save to, to the plant development by itself. So that's that's kind of two different scenarios of what is going on. And there, it is so amazing, like then you, you can develop the understanding of the process by itself together with them. Yes, that's, that's very cool. Awesome. This might be a silly question. What is it that makes Ukraine so great at raising sunflowers? You guys said, I think Ukraine was the number one or the number two exporter of sunflower oil what makes ukraine so so great or such a great place to raise sunflowers i think i think these are uh, the field the climate conditions and also maybe tra- historically some investments were made in the pro sunflower processing okay to produce oil so we have huge factory huge manu- manufacturers for sunflower oil located in in the country and so they're exporting not not the i mean the, one of the main products would be oil so this this is not like raw material this is already some processed uh, product so guys i think that kind of wraps up all the questions that frey and i had any like closing comments? Is there anything else you thought we might talk about today? Or you just kind of want to mention about the state of agriculture and precision planting in Ukraine? Yeah, so um, I would say uh, sometimes, uh, you know, like we were thinking about how we can bring precision planting more d- deep into Ukraine. And precision planting have this great, thing that calls winter conference you know like which can get together all the farmers of the world i've heard about that yeah do you know did you participate i've heard of winter conference (laughs) (laughs) so the idea is that uh, not all the farmers can actually get a time to fly like a half of the world but they are willing to participate so this year was unique one for us because we we bring precision planting winter conference into ukraine it was like a first international winter conference awesome love it how did that go we we got like uh, almost 120 attendees there. Wow, good! It was like amazing. We got the translation. We got a live uh, interview, and it was just amazing event. It was great. Like so, you had live transla- translation there. There was a live translation, and at the same time we provided like uh, like a sessions by ourselves. Like those sessions okay. that were uh, not about the new products that are coming to the market, for example, like a sprayers, we got a translated versions there. And those sessions that talk about more like in agronomy or a planter maintenance session, they were like a live sessions with the interaction with the group. You basically took it and you tried to regionalize it kind of for... We done it, yes. Guys, that's fantastic. Are you going to do it really again? Cool. We'll do. Yeah, we'll Very definitely good. do. 
We are awesome. willing to do that. Gregory, any other thoughts? Yeah, I can say that uh, when we brought a number of uh, farmers to PTI here in the States, they were so much impressed and uh, so much fascinated with what they, with what they saw. It's And... Uh, uh, took a lot of new knowledge from PTI here in in, in, in Illinois in Pontiac. So what we what we are thinking about is that why not build a little PTI there in Ukraine, so that farmers can come and uh, and experience that uh, that PTI atmosphere and uh, be there in Ukraine same way as they would would do here in the states so uh, to just to sum it up i can say that precision planting is turned most ukrainian growers and farmers and dealers appreciate and feel is that with precision planting the first place the mon- on the first place it's not the money so basically it's not like sales volumes in terms of dollars etc it's something else it's values and it has turned into a club of friends, a, cl- a club of um, people who feel the same, who uh, share the values, and this makes it different. And I think we will keep it, and uh, maybe that little PTI in Ukraine will help farmers have that experience when they are coming here. I love that, and I love that thought process about providing an experience, that fun learning experience like you kind of get at the PTI farm. It's really focused on the grower and uh, his growth if you will. So guys, thank you so much for coming in the studio. And I know every time that you come here to visit us, your schedule is jam packed, but you still took the time to come in and talk to us today. And I really appreciate that. I hope you guys had as much fun as we did. We did. Thank you very much, everyone. And yeah, thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for your thought about Ukraine. And thank you everyone for hosting us. That's uh, we, we are spending amazing time here. We enjoying your conversation. That's, uh, yeah, hope to see you soon. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. And uh, welcome to Ukraine one, one day, maybe to the Ukrainian PTI. So uh, hope hopefully the situation will allow you to be our guests there and uh, see what precision planting is doing there in the market of Ukraine. Yeah, I'm, I'm sensing at some point, maybe in the future, um, there's a time when we can have you come back on the podcast and we can talk about the success of the PTI farm in Ukraine and what that looks like and what's changed over the last couple of years. So yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be a lot of fun. That'll be awesome. Cool guys. Thank you so much. Um, I think that's going to kind of wrap us up for today. I think so. Okay. Well guys, again, thank you very much. I hope everybody has enjoyed the conversation with our Ukrainian teammates, uh, Ivan Dineko and uh, Gregory Ovram, as much as we have. Uh, how did I do, guys? I got the names right. Almost good. So, <laughs> yeah, thanks, everyone, for hosting us. It was amazing. Time. You know, give me a little bit of credit. I barely speak English well. <laughs> what? Ivan, I barely speak English well, and I'm, I'm trying to trying to get your name right. Give me give me a little credit. Ivan Dineko. Dineko. There we go. You guys say it much better than I do, of course. Thank you very much for listening. We hope to hear from you uh, and hope you tune in again next time on Smarter Every Season. See you. Bye.